If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 63. I would like to just begin before I read the passage to just ask you a question for your consideration. As objectively as possible, how would you this morning describe your relationship to God? If you were given one word, what would it be? Reverential, passionate, worshipful, joyful, unhindered, what word would summarize your relationship? Or would it be more something like neglected, disinterested, passive, or distant? I I don't think it's an unfair question to be asked and to think about at different times because it involves our most important relationship that we have. And the question is, what is your spiritual temperature? And I also ask you this, whatever the description is, Is that the word you would like it to be? In other words, if your relationship with God is not one of closeness and worship and adoration and joyful service, does that bother you? Because we need to think think about this because we're told in Romans 12 to be fervent in spirit. And we don't want to become half-hearted Christians and then think it's normal. Charles Vaughn said this, The bulk of modern Christians are living far below the grade of both character and comfort to which they are not only authorized, but required to aspire to and obtain. That might be odd language, but here's here's what he's saying. Many of us have become so satisfied with so little compared to what is promised and even expected in Scripture. And to be sure, I understand that we are all in different places in our walk with God. I don't want to put everyone into one category. There are times of of ebbs and flows in our relationship with God, and we don't want to assume things about each other. But my goal today is to speak on the theme of seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. So wherever you are, I hope to show you from this passage that we're going to read in a moment, that that we, we need to be a people who seek Him. We want to look at how the people of old have thought to draw near to him so they might be stirred in the same way. Because I don't think anybody here who's born again would say, that doesn't apply to me. I don't need to seek the Lord. I don't see that need in my life. That idea is antithetical, antithetical to the Christian. We are people who seek the Lord. So I hope that we can take something from this text. But I want to start reading in verse 15 of chapter 63. I'm actually going to read, we're not going to cover the entire chapter of 64, but I'm going to read it just to give us uh, the complete picture here. So he says in verse 15, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. 
Your people, your holy people, possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those whom, who were not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for you. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are the Father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people." Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Now, my hope is to look at this text under four headings. One is a distance from God. You can see that in chapter 63. The second is a desire for God as Isaiah begins to pray. And the third is demonstrations of God. And finally, the distinctiveness of God. And as I said, I, I hope that we can leave here with a renewed confidence in seeking the Lord and be strengthened to do so from this text. So let's, let's first of all think about distance from God. Now, obviously, as I said, not all of us here would say we are distant from God. I'm grateful for that. However, many of us would say that we, in some way, we are not walking as closely with God as we desire. Which means, in some sense, all of us are in need of revival. And revival is a word which triggers many different thoughts in our minds, right? Many desire it, some seek it. All of us need it. Perhaps you think of a revival from the perspective of the lost, where you desire to see a revival which sweeps many lost souls into the kingdom. Or maybe you think of it as needed in your own life to revive the deadness and passivity that has crept in over the years. Or maybe there's others who are walking closely with God and yet still have a hunger for a manifestation, a greater manifestation of God's power and a greater measure of God's spirit in you. So whatever your perspective may be, here's the truth. We need to be a people who seek the Lord. And we usually seek the Lord most passionately when we, dis when we recognize the dis how great the distance has become between us and God, between us and our Savior. 
I think we, it's, it's such interesting language as we read here in the text in, in verse 15 of chapter 63. He says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and, and your compassion are restrained for me, towards me. And we see the, the deplorable state of God's people who have forsaken the Lord. And you can hear the prophet languishing as he's speaking for his people saying, God, where are you? Where is your compassion towards us? Where is your love? He recognized there is a distance and he calls upon God. Now I want to just notice a couple of things about the condition they find themselves in. First of all, we have to recognize their identity. And it is very clear. Verse 16, he says, For you are our Father. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. Brethren, these are people of God. The people who have experienced a relationship with God, they have known him, and yet they have been curtained off from his felt presence because of their sin, and now they see their need to return to him. And I would just like to briefly remind us of how this applies to us, because there are most assuredly times when we walk, as as true Christians, when we walk through the wasteland of, of spiritual dullness and distance from God, perhaps it's God's sovereign design to sanctify us, but more likely it is because of our own sin. But either way, I want to remind you, especially if that is you, that your identity as his child does not change. God is still your father. Christ is still your redeemer. Sin is still your enemy. And we know this because it it is evidence in the fact that you sense that distance from God and you desire to be reunited with him. Because our father is not one who turns away from us forever, even if he hides his face from us for a time. He is still ours. We are still his beloved children. And that is where we must be grounded soundly in the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But the second thing I wanted to see from this is the reason there is a distance between them and God is because there has been a departure from two things following God's ways, and fearing him. Look at, look at verse 17. He says, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? They have departed from following God and from fearing him. I can't really get through this text faithfully without at least mentioning the mysterious way of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as it is written here in verse 17. Isaiah acknowledges that God causes people to stray from his ways and causes them to stop fearing him. And I I think we would be very mistaken if we read that as, as Isaiah laying the blame of this upon God for their situation. I think we would rightly understand it as though it's simply acknowledging God as sovereign even over our wandering away from him. Because the the unregenerate person is very quick to assign blame to God for sin. Well, why didn't God stop me? Why doesn't God save me? Why doesn't God revive me? It's always God. He's putting it out there upon him. And I don't think that is Isaiah's position at all. The Christian, while he sees God and his sovereignty through sin, 
He always takes responsibility. And if you'll notice, as we continue to read through chapter 64, he said in verse 5, Behold, you were angry. Why was God angry? Because we sinned. That, that's, that's why we lose our fear of him and we wander away from him because of our sin. And so we want to be very careful about pointing a finger at God and blaming him because as soon as we do that, we are faced with his holiness and we recognize far more of our own sin and his righteousness than we would ever known before. So back to the main point. Let's just be reminded again, brethren, that if any time we begin to lose that sense of fear of God. And in our minds, we're bringing him down to make him more like us, bringing him down to a human level, talking about him as if he's our, our buddy and our pal, and we have this thing going on. We, we, just want, we just want to be happy. And so we make God a lot like us. So he's easy to relate to and easy to understand. Brethren, when we do that, we have lost our proper fear of God. And to be certain, we will soon wander away from his ways and put ourselves into a position where the only thing that will wake us up and bring us back to him is God's discipline. One of the greatest needs of the Christian is to have a proper fear of God. A fear which helps us to stand with him in his revealed truth when so many are willing to compromise and depart from what he has said. A fear which seeks to honor and obey and to please him in all that we do, regardless of what man thinks of us. A fear of God which enables us to turn away from evil, to be faithful to God's word. As Proverbs 3, 7 says, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. Simply put, that is the Christian. He is a God-fearing person. So let me just ask you before we move on, to consider your ways in this regard. If and when you enter into the land of dullness and of spirit and distance from God, give attention to this and ask yourself if you have lost your fear of him or if you have forsaken his ways. Are you still diligent to seek to follow the Lord as you once were? Not always, but often God's purpose in removing himself in some way is to reveal to us how we have departed from him and how pitiable we are apart from him. So are we God-fearing, Christ-following people committed to this book and obeying it? Or are we guided more by man and our fear of him and our love of ourselves? Because we can see where that goes very quickly. If you read verse 19, what does it say? What is the sad state of the people who, who have gone in this direction? Isaiah said, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. What a sad summary of God's people. Although we would never, ever fit into that description as individuals or as a church. Lord, help us to follow you wholeheartedly and to fear you properly because these things are connected. These things are connected. If we could get into the minds of people who are about to make shipwreck of their faith before we see a departure of, of them following God's ways, if we could get inside their minds, we would see a lack of fear of God. 
No fear of going against his word. No fear of walking in opposition to what God has clearly revealed. They're connected. So brethren, it is always a good prayer to pray, God, help me to fear you rightly and to follow your ways. So then we come to a desire for God. Look how Isaiah responds to this situation. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And we need to see this. We, we need to see in, in this simple plea, just in that one expression, a window into the heart of the prophet, because he longs for this to happen. He is stirred to the core to see God act for his people. And as he, he, he bows his head to God and pleads with a heart of passion, God, please rend the heavens and come down. His heart is full of fervor as he pleads with God. It's not something that, that just comes out of the top of his head. It's been formed within him as he contemplates the sad state of his people. You think about what has moved the prophet to just burst forth in this prayer. He just said that they have become like those who are not called by God. He sees the deplorable state of the people of God. And because of his love for them and his love for God's glory and his desire to see God's glory revealed, he, he bursts forth with the only thing he knows that is needed. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. What a succinct and powerful prayer. It's the same expression of desire that we read in Job 23, verse 3, where Job, speaking of God, says, Oh, that I might know where I can find him. That's the prayer of holy desperation that is born out of a realization that God is not near to us. That's why Isaiah prays that God would come down because he recognizes this is a need for revival. Lord, we've not lived like your people. We have wandered away from you. We, we, in your sovereignty, you've allowed us to do so, but we have gone astray. But Lord, we're your people. We're your, you are our father. Return to us. Renew us. Restore us. Refresh us. Revive us. That's the prayer. Rend the heavens and come down. This is, this is a longing which is forged into the heart of someone who knows God. And yet he is burdened by his own sinfulness and waywardness. And he looks around at his land and sees the people of God struggling. And he sees the wickedness encroaching on the church like an animal ready to pounce on its prey. And all of these things are burning in the heart of the prophet until he just bursts forth into what he knows is needed the presence of God. We need this kind of passionate desperation for God. Have we ever been brought to a place where we have experienced this level of yearning after him, where we know that we must have God come in such a way that we are cleansed of our apathy Cleansed of our fearlessness. Cleansed of our self-interest. And we're willing to follow him. Have you ever longed for God in such a way where you would say what Isaiah said? Where are your passion and your zeal? Where are the stirrings of your heart? It, it, sounds, it sounds like he goes too far. And yet he pleads with God. He pleads with him. Where is your compassion? Come down, O oh Lord, come down. I would ask you this. In, in your life, 
brothers and sisters, in your life, though you may be saved and have walked with God for years, maybe even decades, have there not been times where you have longed for God to come in such a way that he shows you his glory more clearly and he fills you with a heart that is so full of a desire to see him. I'm just asking if we have a continual longing for God. Because we don't want a spiritless Christianity. We don't want to say, like the prophet, where we don't fear you and we don't follow you. We don't want a bunch of activity with no heart and no spirit behind it. I mean, can't can't we identify with this plea for God to come down? Isn't this your longing to see God's glory, to experience the fullness of God, rending the heavens and coming down in power to save lost people, to captivate the passive, the pa- giving the power to make the Christian say with Paul, I will live for him who died for me. I will do that with God's help. Because this is essentially a prayer for God's glory and the revival of his people and the demonstration of God's power over his enemies. But I, I notice something very specific about Isaiah's prayer. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He wanted God himself. He wanted God. In, in today's language, you know what that is? He, he's not praying. He's not praying for, for a new vision or a new program or, or some way to attract God's people back to the church. He's not promising to rededicate himself and do better at reading the Bible and doing all these things. He's not asking for that. He's praying for God himself. He desired God's presence more than any other need. He wanted a manifestation of the power and presence of God. That's what we need as a church. That is our need as a church today. Even even as we meet today and every Lord's Day, this is our prayer. We don't need to be the most attractive church in the area with a cool name and lots of programs and no power. That's not what we're looking for. How easily ministry can be faked. We can have all kinds of things going on. We can have bigger buildings and more programs and lots of people on staff and relevant talks instead of real sermons. That's what we can do. But it can be dead. Lots of things, no power. Our need is great, is far greater. We need to be a church and a people who are marked by the power and the presence of God himself. In essence, this this is our prayer. Every time we meet, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. We're praying here for a work that can't be faked, a work that no man can take credit for, a work that God will do, not man, a work that you will receive glory from. It's something that we, we long to have, a new and fresh visitation of God to his people. And so what, I, what I'm focusing on in this point is, is just desire. Is that our desire? Are we a people who desire for God so that we would echo Isaiah's prayer with such passion? Perhaps there are a number of people here this morning who who know that there may be a distance between you and God and you feel that separation. Do you pray this way? Do you seek after the Lord? Do you have your spiritual 
senses sharpened to the point where we are quick to see when the Lord is distant from us. God, help us not to be a people, individually or as a body, who are satisfied and content to have a Christianity that is void of the power of God. Give us a, a holy unrest until we're not coming to church to sing a few songs and hear a sermon and go back on our way. We're coming to meet with God. We want Him. Because we can read books about God. We can read books about men who knew about God. We can read about all that God has done throughout Scripture and even there in the New Testament where God has come and visited His people in, in massive ways. But don't we gather as God's people as well? Aren't we able to seek Him just like they did? What did the Lord say? He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, that's not the description of some super Christian. That's a description of every Christian who, who, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and is satisfied in God. That's us. Do you remember Moses? He's an example of this. Here's a man who knew God so intimately. He knew him as a friend. He witnessed so much of God's miraculous intervention, right? I mean, think of all those things. He saw God miraculously deliver a multitude from slavery. He saw them part the Red Sea. He saw water gush out of, out of a rock. He saw food fall from heaven. Uh, he, a pillar of fire. All these things. And yet, what do we see? He's praying to see more of God's glory. He's, Show me your glory, Lord. Show me your glory. His desire, his desire was for God and his glory. Brethren, hungry people don't stop looking for food if they can't find it in the first place they look. We keep looking. Every cupboard in the kitchen, every freezer, every refrigerator will ask somebody. We keep looking until we find something that's going to satisfy our hunger. In the same way, don't stop. Don't give up on seeking the Lord after one time of prayer, after coming to a prayer meeting and not seeing something happen. Don't forsake it. Don't leave it. We have promises. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We have that. And so I hope we understand something of Isaiah's desire to have God rend the heavens or to, or, or to identify with David where he says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Put that hunger to work and let it stir you to seek the Lord. So a distance from God, a desire for God, and then we want to see the demonstrations of God. <clears throat> I would just ask this. <clears throat> what exactly is Isaiah praying for? What does he have in mind? He says that the mountains might quake at your presence. It is very possible that Isaiah had Exodus 19 in mind when he wrote this, because there we read of God coming down on Mount Sinai and fire and smoke was rising up like a furnace and the mountain was burning and quaking and all of these things. It's the same kind of language here. So, so in, in Isaiah 63, 17, we understand that God's people were not fearing him. God had hardened their heart. So perhaps Isaiah is praying that God would demonstrate his power in such a way as he did to the Israelites back in Mount Sinai. But do you know what's interesting as I read through that uh, experience? 
in, in back in Mount Sinai, God came down upon the mountain there in Exodus 19. And after he gave the law to Moses in chapter 20, the people said to Moses, they said, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you that the fear of him might remain with you so that you do not sin. The first thing that happens when God visits his people is that they fear him. As we talked about before, they fear him, a holy and reverential fear that does not want to sin against him or offend him. It's not a slavish fear, but one that is right and proper when we recognize God's glory and our own sinfulness. So when we coast along through life and we don't recognize God for who he is, and we don't fear him as we should, and suddenly we see a manifestation of God, and it causes us to fear him and see him rightly. Another aspect of this prayer that he is praying for is a demonstration of the power of God. He says, as, the, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, Lord, do what only you can do. Kindle the fire of judgment and purification and boil up our affections until they're purified and we worship you as we should. Maybe this kind of praying strikes a chord with us because it has echoes of what the Lord taught us to pray. What did, he ta- what did he teach? Your kingdom come. Pray for God's kingdom to come. That's what we're seeking for in every dimension. For the kingdom of God to be established. For God's glory to be manifested in every area of your life. Lord, let your kingdom come in my life, in this church. Let your name be holy and set apart. Demonstrate your power to us, Lord. Where we are lacking conformity to you, help us to change. Where we are representing you wrongly, give us strength to alter our ways. Lord, in our families, we have lots of families, and Lord, we need you in our families to come down and give us strength. Our, my marriage needs help. I want it to be all that it needs to, or it should be. Help us, Lord, pour out your spirit upon us so that we see our children turning from their sin and running to you to save them. We want to see demonstrations of God's power among us. I would hope that none of us here are content with going through the motions. I mean, we are going to be faithful to the means of grace, but we're also going to pray that God demonstrates himself as someone who still saves the lost who still convicts people of sin, who still sets apart and calls out missionaries and sends them out, who still is active among his people. But the final aspect of this prayer, or, well, maybe not the final one, another aspect is that we see God displaying his power to his enemies. What are we praying for in seeking the Lord? What is it that we're praying for? To make your name known, Lord, to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. God is very interested in making his name known, and I think we can use that as a church. I mean, this, is this not a prayer for us today? God, God make your name known to your adversaries. Make the nations tremble at your presence. This is a prayer with 
worldwide implications. Oh, Lord, be done with the reviling of your people. Lord, make your name known to them. You see the afflictions of your people scattered across this globe. You see what's going on in the Middle East. You see what's going on in, in Myanmar. You see how your people are suffering, and you choose to work through that, for you have ordained it. But Lord, we would ask that you would show your power to these oppressors. Show yourself to them. Make your name known to them. You heard, you heard the, the prayers of your people back there in Egypt, and you came to save them. You came to rescue them. Lord, rescue your people now. See, these are things that we can pray for. Even, even in our country, we have things that we should be praying. Do we not see in our day an attempt to silence the people of God? Close the churches, limit their involvement, censor their language, keep them in fear, force another definition of marriage and and sexuality upon them, keep them under the thumb of the government. And to that we say, God, make your name known to them. Help them to see. Lord, this country is for the most part a godless nation. We recognize that. And you have promised judgment on, on the ungodly. But are you not also a God who saves and who changes people? Maybe you would come in our land in such a way that many would turn to you and be saved. Rend the heavens and come down that the righteous people may be established that righteousness would reign and wickedness would flee. You tell us to pray for your, your, the leaders. Lord, come in power. Come and remove people from their positions who oversee the legal murder of so many children and put someone in their place with at least enough common grace to know that there is a sense of morality and integrity. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We look to the Lord. He's going to have to do something, and we ask God to rend the heavens and come. Come upon our church. Come upon our families. Even come upon this country in such a way that your people will fear you, and they will follow you, and your enemies will flee from you. So what is Isaiah praying for? He's praying for a manifestation of the presence of God in all of these ways. He's praying for God to come down that the distance between us and God would be closed, that we would know an intimacy with him. Isaiah is asking for direct intervention from God himself. That's what we're seeking. So now the final aspect of this prayer is that it is in line with God's nature. It is in line with God's nature. In this prayer, Isaiah is not appealing to God for a new thing. God, you've done this in the past. Do it again. So when we pray for this, we're not praying for something unheard of in the mind of God. Isaiah says, when you did awesome things, which we did not expect, he recalls what God had done in the past. So brethren, we have to recognize that God has revived his people and even revived nations in times past. God has come in this way throughout history, and we're simply asking him to do it again. What kind of expectations do we have? I mean, we read Scripture enough to know that God has done things for His people that they did not expect. In, in Psalm 66, there, He's recalling the Red Sea miracle, and, as, and God is described there as one who is awesome in His deeds towards the sons of men. That's how God's described. 
as one who is awesome in his deeds towards us, towards the sons of men. And God is still doing that. They didn't expect God to part the Red Sea, not at all. They expected to die. Yet what, what do we see? God did what they didn't expect. And he rescued them. Friends, I want you to hear this. That God is still awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He is still doing awesome things just as miraculous as parting the Red Sea. We just need to think of it in, in the spiritual realities that we are up against. Just like the children of Israel up against the Red Sea. We need God to do things that we didn't expect. We need him to soften hard hearts, to heal relationships, to bring to us open doors for ministry. We need him to do these things. This demonstration of God's power and our need of, of God and, and him doing awesome things is so fresh in my mind because of what we have experienced and we prayed for for our son Nicholas. God, you have done miraculous things. We read through Mark. We were studying Mark. You healed children who were brought to you. You've done these things. You are very concerned for your glory, Lord. And, and, and you see these doctors who deny you. Would you not make a name for yourself? Would you not do something that no one expects? Would you not make your glory so known to these people, to your enemies, and to us, the praying church, people who are, who are seeking you? Would you not demonstrate your power to a watching world? See, what drives us? What really drives us to seek a demonstration of God's power? What needs do you have? Where have you exhausted every attempt you could possibly think of, and now you recognize you need God? Are there broken relationships that need healing? Are there children who need saved? Are there obstacles before you that only God can move? Are there things in your past that you can't let go of? What is it? What is it that you need God to do? Because he still demonstrates his power by doing awesome deeds that we did not expect. Take, take your needs to him. Trust him. Lord, make your name known. Don't, don't. Lord, this is an opportunity to get glory for yourself. Rend the heavens and come down and do what we cannot do. We want to see demonstrations of God's power. But then I want us to briefly look at the distinctiveness of God. And I want to encourage you with this. <clears throat> Especially if you're here this morning and you feel like you've lost sight of God to some degree. Perhaps he's not near to you as you would like. His ways are not as clear to you as you once were. But I want to remind you of, of some of the things which makes God distinct from all other so-called gods. Listen. For front, verse 4 of 65, uh, verse 4 of chapter 64. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Brethren, listen, how is God distinct from all others? He actually acts and works on behalf of his people. 
He meets us. God meets us. I, I wanted to preach this for a couple of reasons. One is to show us the, the desire that Isaiah had to, to plead with God to come in such a way. But I also wanted to encourage us that we have a God who is so good to us. Who has known a God like our God? He has done great things. Look at what he has done for his people. That's why Isaiah can pray this way, because he knew God was not going to forsake or forget his people. And that's still the case today, is it not? He's not going to. Pray to him. Trust his promises. Seek his coming in power. Seek his intervention in your life, because he is still a God who does marvelous deeds for us. Prayer meetings, it turns out, are effectual. <laughs> Amen? We see throughout Scripture that God is prepared to help. He has all that we need. Jesus said in Matthew 6 that the Heavenly Father already knows what we need. Here we read that He acts for those who wait for Him. In other words, we have a God who is prepared to meet us when we come. So remember that. When you pray and you pray and you wait and you wait upon God to answer that prayer. He is the living God who is actively working all things for good for those who love him. He is working. This is not ritual. This is not religious activity. This is seeking the one true God who has a perfect history of goodness and faithfulness to his people. It, it's sometimes hard, I think, at least for myself, to think as we pray. I mean, it's, it's easy to become stuck in this thought pattern. Yes, we, we recognize, I recognize that God has done great things for his people in times past. He's shown himself powerful to different people in different times, but where is he today? Does God still rend the heavens and come down? Does he still meet his people in the same way? Does he still bring revival to a family or a community or, or, or a church? Does he still heal people? Yes. Does he still call people out and send them out? There's a qualification in verse 4 that is really the only one I see. It's, it's, it's waiting. Waiting upon God. When we are in this position, we, we can't make things happen ourselves. We must wait. We are dependent upon him. But how quick we are to pray and then go off and make it happen on our own. We ask God to rend the heavens and come down, and then we take it in our own hands. Lord, we need money for this work. And then we go raise it ourselves. It's little wonder that we see little of God coming in power when we're so quick to intervene rather than waiting upon him. Because you know what? At least in my life, waiting upon him is probably the hardest thing. It's what my flesh hates the most. I don't want to wait. I don't have time to wait. Right? Isn't that how we are? We're such impatient people. I am. I'll admit that. But this is where the one true God is distinct from all others. He's not distant. He's not impersonal. He's not some being who doesn't care about us. Wait for him. That's why Isaiah says, No eye has seen a God beside you who does this. What makes God unique is that he actually does work on behalf of those who wait for him. Have you ever read back there in Isaiah 41 where he says, where God says, Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you. 
declares the Lord. That's encouraging. Not to fear. God will help you. Brethren, we're not just religious people. Religious people make up a God of all kinds of gods who suit them and expect little from them. Those so-called gods are nothing more than man's imagination and they're powerless. We serve a God who does things, who we trust because we know he will work. The religious person goes around taking care of everything himself because there's no help for him. But here we are, calling upon the one true God who is enthroned on high, ruling over all peoples and all planets, and, call, and moving in a thousand different providences to provide for us, to unfold his plan for us. We can afford to wait for him. Brethren, we serve the living God, do we not? We serve the living God. So don't let's never treat him as a deaf, mute idol who doesn't hear us or act on our behalf. Just pray to him and wait in expectation. And it is good to remind ourselves of Scripture and even the history of the church as it, as it comes to seeking the Lord. God, you've heard the cries of your saints throughout history, and you've provided for them. You heard David. You were jealous for your glory, so you helped him against the Philistine giant. You came in power when the temple was built. You came in the book of Acts when people were gathered together and prayed, and you emboldened them to go out and share the gospel. Lord, you can do this again. We're seeking no new thing. We're just asking God that your presence might be known in a mighty way even among us. Now, just finally, notice the tender care God has for his people. He says in verse 5, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. And this is bringing to mind the picture of the prodigal son, or the story of the prodigal son. The son deserted his father and took his inheritance and squandered it, but when his father saw him, he ran to meet him. Brothers and sisters, it would not be right for us to think that somehow we are more willing to meet God than he is to meet us. That's attempting to lay the blame on God for our disobedience and lack of devotion. God is always prepared to meet us when we forsake our sin and return to him. In Hosea, in a different context, he says, the Lord says, I will go away and I'll return to my place until, until they acknowledge their sin and guilt and seek my face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Earnestly seek the Lord. That's, that's my exhortation. Earnestly seek the Lord. If you're willing to call upon him and wait upon him and forsake your sin, seek the Lord. He will meet you. I just want to very briefly close with simple application. But first, <clears throat> I just want to ask, if there are any even among us who are like those people Isaiah summarized in verse 19 of chapter 63, the people who are living as though God never ruled over them. If that's you this morning, I just want to urge you to take Isaiah's position of humbly pleading for the Lord and ask you to do that in your own life. 
I want to give you just some basic truths of how we seek God. Three quick things. We seek the Lord through bold confession. Bold confession of sin. We see in Isaiah 64, 5, this simple admission saying, we sinned. We just read in Hosea where the Lord was waiting for his people to confess their sin and return to him. Sin is always a barrier between us and God. And yet what do we read? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read in Psalm 32, David said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And I say bold confession because we've got to believe there's some strong medicine for us if we're going to confess our sins. But as we know, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Bold confession. Bold confession. Second, we seek the Lord through simple obedience. These people were not following God's ways because they were not living as as those who were God's people. So the question is, brothers and sisters, are we following God's ways? Have we obeyed his words in the simplest matters, such as salvation and baptism and whatever else the Lord has shown you clearly in his word? Are we obeying him? The Christian is one who obeys the Lord. That's that's a distinctive. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. He said, if you're my friends, if you do what I command you. It's a waste of time. Hear me. It's a waste of time to pray and seek presence of the Lord, if you know there is disobedience in your life, if the Lord has shown you something, deal with that first. And then finally, we seek the Lord through praying for his glory. You know, Isaiah appealed to God's glory when he said, Lord, come down in order that your name might be made known to your adversaries. We want to be a people who seek First and foremost, the glory of God in the magnification of Him in all things. Hallowed be your name. That's the cry of the Christian. So so beyond all our prayers for help and healing, pray for such things as, God, make your name known through me. God, make your name known through my family, through my church. Lord, whatever my situation Use me, my sickness, my health, my marriage, my home, my gifts, my finances, all of it, Lord. I'm seeking your glory and I'm laying it down before you and saying, I will follow you. So it really is that simple. Confess, obey, seek his glory, seek the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, it is you that we seek, and we pray, God, for an abundant measure of your Spirit to help us to overcome sin, to follow you fully and wholeheartedly, to fear you rightly, to honor you, and seek your glory above our own in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name.